may be joining us online as well. Welcome to Trinity Fellowship Church. My name is Mike Traven. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship, and we're grateful that you're here with us. As Jeff said, it's the second Sunday of Easter. We're into this season of the liturgical calendar that we call Easter or Eastertide. It's seven Sundays, 50 days, leading up to the Feast of Pentecost. And as we greet one another, we say, he is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. Well, it would seem as a society that we have some sort of unwritten code of things that we don't talk about in polite conversation. I said it's an unwritten code, so the list varies depending on who you are and and what source you consult. There's a lot of topics, but most people agree on the top three. Right? Religion, politics, and money. Right. Or the other one you were thinking, it's a toss-up, but we're going to go with money just for the sake of politeness here in, in the church. Well, being that we've gathered here this morning in the sanctuary to, to hear the word proclaimed and to remember the Lord's life, his death and resurrection, we're, we're just not going to be able to avoid religion. Although we'll speak politely about it, I'm sure. And in the practical application of good manners, we all can be incredibly thankful to God for his provision, for our church, for the generosity of all of us in this body, of how we've given of our time, our talent, and, and even our treasure. So discussion of money, yep, check. So that, uh, with two of the three addressed, where does that leave us? Politics. Now, some of you are saying, yes, this is finally going to get interesting. (laughs) And for others of you, I might as well have uttered the most vulgar, shocking word for human excrement like Paul does in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. Now, I don't want to distract you because Jeff Harding is going to preach on that whole topic, passage of scripture. Um... But as, as Christians, we're called to be full participants in the cultivating of all of creation and doing the good work of cultivating and improving the cities we live in, the nation we live in, the part of the world we happen to live in is an important part of our calling as Christians. As Christians, we're called not to dominate the civic culture, but to infuse it with grace and truth in love. Yet how our citizenship in heaven should relate to our citizenship here in this life, in our own nation, or as part of a global community of nations, it can be confusing and difficult to navigate. There's such a range of feelings and opinions on this issue of what does it mean to be a citizen that we in our culture have made it just one of those taboo topics that we don't bring up in polite conversation. Let's take January 6th just as an example. For some, they viewed the storming of the Capitol as a very American and perhaps even a God-ordained event. And for others, on a completely different place in the spectrum, it was completely the opposite. 
just one example of, of how difficult these issues can be, how divisive they can be, how uncomfortable they can be, particularly for us as Christians. It's interesting to note that recent scholarship seems to be pointing more and more to the conclusion that instead of deciding who we will cast a ballot for based on religious views or tradition, most Americans actually pick a church that lines up with their view of the political world. Is this really what God has intended for his people? That given our innate human desire, our our desire to belong and to fit in, which is a God-given desire, this desire for belonging, that we would rather join a Christian assembly that fits our already developed political views on a myriad of issues, perhaps even the one that preserves our personal notions of what it means to have control over our life and circumstances and exert power and influence in our community. Well, it has always been Christianity's strength and its weakness that it can fit into any culture. We've seen this throughout history. It, it, Christianity can effectively communicate with any culture. But it can also be shaped and influenced by the host culture. And that's what makes this challenge of being a citizen of heaven so challenging. So how do our Christian lives fit into the world we live in? As you ponder your own answer to that question, we're all over the spectrum. And that's okay because that's part of God's design too. That we're a diverse body of people with different gifts, different talents, different life experiences, different points of view. All who come together in love hopefully to come to some common place of what it means to be a witness for Christ. We see it in our own doctrinal statement for our church, the Nicene Creed. The one thing that all churches, Reformed churches, Western and Eastern, can agree on. There's a lot of little things we fight about. How do our Christian lives fit into the world that we live in? How can we see our story as a living expression of Jesus' story. Well, we're going to begin to explore some of these answers. And I want to emphasize, begin to explore. We're not going to provide all the answers. Lord knows if we tried that many of you would not agree. And that's okay. We're going to begin to walk together. It's how we're moving together into the remarkable love of Jesus Christ. That we can enter in to even talking about these issues to examining our different points of view and to respecting those points of view. And so we're doing that here as we look at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, a a series that we've entitled Citizens of Heaven. Now, the epistle of the Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippian church, is probably more familiar to us as memorable sound bites or little bits and pieces. There's a lot of pieces of scripture there that we've heard, right? Paul says, for to, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, he says in chapter 1. 
He says in chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We, we've, we've all heard that. Our citizenship is in heaven, he says in chapter 3. The inspiration for the title of our series. And then in chapter 4, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm certain that each of you who've spent time in this book in your Christian walk can point to many others from the book of Philippians that are memorable to you. Well, as a Pauline epistle, a letter, the design of the letter does not develop one singular idea from beginning to end as many of Paul's letters do. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short vignettes or stories, reflective essays, one theologian calls them, all revolving around what would be considered the center of gravity of the letter. In chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, you might have heard it referred to as the kenosis passage, this messianic poem which retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. It it is the center of gravity of the letter, and, and we may spend more than one Sunday just talking about that passage. But in each of the letter's other vignettes, Paul takes up a key word or idea from this messianic poem and expands on them to show his audience, the church at Philippi, and by extension, us, what it means to live our lives as Christians, as citizens of heaven. Seeing our own story as a living expression of Jesus' story. Now, this just this phrase, citizens of heaven, I want to take 30 seconds and unpack it, right? I mean, what does it mean to be a citizen? It means you are part of a distinct cultural group. You have an identity, and with that identity is certain responsibility and privileges. Citizenship is, is something that many come to this country seeking. And heaven, we all have a different notion of what is heaven. Right? Heaven can be the literal sky, the heavenly abode of God and angels, the, the realm of the spiritual. But heaven can, can also be something that we experience a little bit of here on earth. In the Bible, there's this duality between heaven as the abode of the spiritual and, and the earth below as the realm of the physical. But as we see in throughout Scripture that, that ultimately God's plan is to bring them together, right? They were separated by sin. And God's plan in the end is that heaven and earth are reunited in a new heaven and earth. So in a sense, when we say citizens of heaven, we're not just talking about, you know, that place I go when I die. We're talking about the here and now and the eternal future. Which brings me to my first point this morning, that as citizens of heaven, we are both slaves and saints. I'll talk more about that in a moment as I get into the actual verses of the letter, but I I want to give a little bit of a, a background. You see, at the time that Paul wrote this letter, he was imprisoned in Rome. He was there for having created a public disturbance. He's awaiting a trial that could result in the end of his life. 
his execution. There had been a lot of communication between Paul and the church in Philippi. Letters exchanged by messengers, gifts being brought back and forth. And on this occasion, he wrote this letter to thank them for their monetary support. To give them an update of his own situation and status. And to even admonish them and exhort them and warn them about certain things that were going on in their church. Now, as we see in Luke's letter, The Acts of the Apostles, we see this story of Paul's missionary journeys. And in chapter 16, we see that that Paul had established the church at Philippi in his first missionary journey. Paul was on this journey. He's in Troas in Asia Minor, intending to go somewhere else. And at night, he has a vision. And in this vision, a man of Macedonia appears to him and says, Please come and help us. And so Paul and his companions, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, board a ship and they set sail for Macedonia. The ship lands in a city called Neapolis, obviously on the coast. They travel inland about 10 miles on a, on a major route of Roman commerce called the Ignatian Way. And they end up in this city of Philippi. It became his base for his first evangelistic missionary efforts. And it was one of the most important cities in the reason for the very fact that it it was this place of Roman culture sitting on a major route of commerce. Very important to the region. It wasn't it wasn't a large city, but it was strategically located. And it had a rich heritage and a distinctively Roman culture. Large numbers of the Philippian occupants were descendants of Roman soldiers who had captured the city about a hundred years before Paul wrote the letter, captured it from the men who had uh, assassinated a Roman Caesar, Brutus and his buddy, whose name I don't remember at the moment. Well, while in Philippi, as we read again in Acts 16, Paul begins to minister. He goes, his habit was to go to the synagogue, right, and and meet in the synagogue, but there wasn't one. So he finds himself down by a river. He meets some Jewish women, among them a woman named Lydia, and he begins to proclaim the gospel to Lydia. Later, we see that Paul is walking through the city and he exercises a demon from a young slave girl. This demon allowed her to foretell the future. And Paul cast this demon out of her, which didn't make the slave girl's owners very happy because she was a significant source of revenue for them. So what do they do? They go and they complain to the city leadership and say, hey, this, this these guys, they're... Jews, and they're asking, they're doing things that are really offensive to our Roman culture and practices. You should do something about that. So they're hauled before the magistrates, questioned, stripped, beaten, and thrown in prison. And that night while in prison, we know from the story, this great earthquake strikes, and all the gates of the jail cells are flung open, and and the... Jailer is thinking, well, that's it. 
they all got away from me and I'm done. So he's about to kill himself and Paul calls out, you know, don't do it. <laughs> um, and ends up preaching the gospel to this jailer and converting him and his family. So there was a lot going on in Paul's ministry in his first trip there. Well, the magistrates decide that night, for whatever reason, that we need to release them. Well, when they go to release them, Paul's like, I'm not, not that simple, friend. I'm a Roman citizen. And you threw me in jail uh, without really great cause. And that made them fearful. And so they asked him to leave the city. And so, so Paul and Timothy and Silas leave Philippi. But they left behind a diverse group of believers that became this Philippian church, this church that he's writing the letter to, this church of Christians living in a Roman culture, a non-Christian culture with a great deal of cultural influences, learning to deal with one another. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What does it mean to be a Christian? To be ambassadors for Christ, to be in this world, but not of this world, to borrow the phrase. He leaves behind Lydia, a wealthy merchant in her household, a woman who financed a great deal of Paul's ministry. He leaves behind the jailer and his family, perhaps a slave girl, a diverse group of people with a diverse group of experiences and opinions. Well, many commentators believe that the Philippian church was Paul's favorite church, next to Trinity Fellowship, of course. (laughs) The Philippians were willing to support Paul's missionary efforts in other towns from the beginning. And they gave him help during times when other churches were unable or unwilling to assist him. And so this church in Philippi occupies an important place in Paul's heart. Turn with me, if you would, if if you uh, care to, Philippians chapter 1, picking up in verse 1. Again, where Paul says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It has some differences I want to highlight. Um, This morning, Miss Carrie Jane read from the ESV, but it opens by Paul saying, this letter is from Paul and Timothy. Slaves of Christ Jesus. It's significant because here's Paul, an apostle, and Timothy, his protege, for all intents, a pastor. And he doesn't say, and it was customary at the time when you wrote a letter, you said, hey, you know, hey, this is Paul. To you, greetings. He says, hey, greetings from Paul and Timothy. Apostle, pastor. No, he says slaves of Christ Jesus. He, he has this attitude of, of humility and service. And this, this word he uses would exactly have that connotation. Not, not the idea of a, of a slave who, uh, was, um, an indentured, someone who had sold themselves into service. You know, oftentimes slaves were held in high regard and by their families. They, Raised children of those who they were serving. No, he means a slave. Like chattel slave. A slave of Christ. 
And he addresses it to, he says, I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Jesus Christ, including the church leaders and deacons. In other translations, he says, to the saints in Philippi. And Paul's making, I think, an important point here, and it is my first point, that as citizens of heaven, we are both slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ and saints. It's an interesting duality to always hold intention in the forefront. That we're serving the risen Lord. We're saints in the eyes of God because of what has been done for us in Jesus Christ. That is the good news. But we're called to be slaves of Christ. As saints, we have the privileges of citizenship in heaven but also the ethical responsibilities that come with that. He says in verse 2, May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Well, as I was looking at this image that's on the screen, um, created by a a gentleman who does our graphics all the time, who I've never met, and I've uh, he does great work. And I look at that and I'm just using it as some inspiration and I I begin to see a couple of things in that image. One, I see a banner. And I want to point out to you that I think that that banner that we all live under as citizens of heaven is, is the kingdom of God, the risen Christ, our Lord and Savior, through whom we have grace and peace. We have this unmerited favor of God giving of himself in relationship to each of us, the grace. And we have peace, this wholeness, this fullness of life that we're growing into as we walk this journey in this life of our spiritual transformation. The banner is Christ. The banner of Christ is love that manifests itself in grace and peace. So as citizens of heaven, we are both slaves and saints, marching under this banner of Christ. But as citizens of heaven, we're also united in partnership with Christ and others by the gospel. Looking at verses 3 through 8, Paul begins this prayer of thanksgiving. He says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time you heard it until now. Paul, in prison, is offering prayers of thanksgiving for the Philippians with a sense of joy. Not joy that he's in prison, but his joy comes from the work of the gospel that's being lived out throughout the region, in the church in Philippi, in the jail where he's sitting. As we see later on in the letter. And there's this theological theme that emerges for the letter. You see, in the introduction of these epistles, oftentimes we can find clues to what are the things that Paul's 
going to talk about or exhort his readers or the hearers of his letters. And one of those in this letter is fellowship and unity. They're critical to us as citizens of heaven. Fellowship and unity. One, we weren't designed to live life as individuals isolated from one another. We're designed to live life in community. Not because it's easy and comfortable and everybody agrees with you and everyone thinks like you and everything's awesome. No. Because we're designed to rub up against one another, to sharpen one another, to challenge one another's thinking, to listen to one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Fellowship and unity, it's 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 necessary to withstand the forces that are hostile to the gospel. None of us wants to be alone. Even the most introverted in this group, I promise you, you don't want to be alone. It's necessary to withstand the forces that are arrayed against us. And it's necessary to present a credible witness to a believing world. If we're not united, if we're not in fellowship with one another, then what we have to offer seems probably a lot less appealing to one another. And by united, I don't mean unanimous. I mean united. And then, of course, our fellowship and our unity is necessary for being found blameless on the day of Christ. You see, God is intended for us. Part of the way we steward his creation is together in unity, collaborating, cultivating. It's why we're moving together into the remarkable love of Jesus Christ. And what is God doing in the midst of us in our fellowship? He's transforming us into humble servants, into slaves and saints. He says in verse 6, or excuse me, yeah, verse, sorry, man, I'm so old I can't read the numbers. Verse 6, and I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. It's a process. We can't do it without God. We can't do it without the Spirit. We certainly can't even begin the journey without Christ. And we can't live out our citizenship in heaven without one another. And so much of this, I also see here, it's interesting, it, I see a can opener. Can anyone see a can opener? Because, you know, this letter opens a can of worms for a lot of us, right? In a lot of different areas. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What, what does working out our salvation with fear and trembling look like? What does it mean that that the work will finally be finished on the day Christ Jesus returns. I don't want to wait that long. 
How do grace and effort fit together in the Christian life? How do we engage the culture around us, engage in conversations about religion, politics, money, relationships, health, bodily functions? Being citizens of heaven can can open a lot of can of worms for us. Cans of worms. I see a can up here. But Paul says he makes his prayer with joy, right? Well, how do we experience joy? Well, we look to Christ as our model for Christian mission. See, Christ in his life is our model. He's, he's, the, he's for whom we take the name Christian, right? Statement of the obvious. He adopted certain postures toward people, toward issues. He had certain practices. So that's how we experience joy. The, the, Paul's letter to the Philippian church is oftentimes referred to as the epistle of joy. The word for joy in the Greek occurs in this letter 17 times. But if we only think this epistle is about joy, we probably are a little bit um, giving it too central of a role. You see, Paul's joy is the result of their partnership in the gospel. His joy isn't, man, life's awesome. I'm in prison. Food's great. His joy is the result of their partnership in the gospel. That's what gives Paul joy in his life full of trials, beatings, shipwrecks, loneliness. And our joy is to be the result of the work of the gospel as well. Which brings me to our our third and final point. The fruit of our citizenship is a righteousness of character that's produced in Jesus Christ. You see, not only is our objective of being citizens of heaven to be ambassadors for Christ, to influence the culture around us in the way God intends for us to do that, but also that we would grow in our own sense of righteousness. It's the slave and saint's part. Righteousness that's produced in Christ. So in the final verses 9 to 11, Paul now offers an intercessory prayer for the church at Philippi. And, and again, by extension, you and me. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. What's Paul's first desire of how they would grow? And their ability to love, right? That's, that's who God is. The scriptures tell us God is love. Paul tells Timothy in, in one of his pastoral epistles, he says, the goal of our instruction is love. That's what God's trying to do in you and me, brothers and sisters, is teach us to love others more fully. The way Christ loves them. He wants them to grow in love. And then he also wants them to grow in their knowledge and discernment. I love what the New Living Translation says. It says, it's what really matters. Growing in love and knowledge and discernment. 
How do we grow in love? We, we allow God to transform the desires of our hearts. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Watch over our hearts with all diligence, the scriptures remind us. For from it flow the springs of life. God wants to change your and my heart to grow our capacity to love others. It's what really matters. Paul says, for I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. He says in verse 11, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. The righteousness of character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. The fruit of our salvation is the righteousness of character produced in our life by Jesus Christ. It's it's what really matters. So I also see up here a key. And the key is self-sacrificing love. We walk under this banner as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we do it in self-sacrificing love. It's how we practice our citizenship. To shine as lights is to reflect the truth in life, not just proclaim it in word. And to pursue righteousness is to seek to serve God and others through a life filled with virtue, where the goal is is not to get and to keep and to protect, but to give and to minister. To proclaim the gospel, it's, it's what gives Paul joy. And so, how do our Christian lives fit into the world we live in? There, there is no black and white answer. We've got to begin, we've got to commit to continuing to walk this road together in this process of our spiritual transformation. A process that will last for our entire life. Dr. Frank Thielman, a professor of the New Testament at Beeson Divinity School, says this. He says, if we follow Paul's example and his advice to the Philippians, we should not allow our feelings of exclusion either to lead us on a conquest of society's structures so that we can restore the Protestant veneer of the 1950s or to push us into retreating behind walls designed to keep the world away. He says our goal, like Paul's, should be to advance the gospel by engaging the culture, remembering all the while that the world belongs to God and that he loved it so much that he sought to reconcile it to himself through the death of his son. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we've been liberated from all of the fear and worry that we carry about what it means to be a citizen of America. A Christian. And by the Holy Spirit, we, we have the ultimate power. We don't need to get power anywhere else. As citizens of heaven, individual Christians in the church, we wield our power and influence by laying down our lives for others. 
as citizens of heaven, as Christians, as individuals, as the church, we wield our power and influence by laying it down for others. And it's how Paul tells us. It's how he experiences joy. And friends, it's how you and I can experience joy in this life as citizens of heaven as well. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, almighty and everlasting God, who in this Easter mystery established your new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all of us who've been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may may show forth in our lives as citizens of heaven what it is that we profess by our faith. May our lives be a living expression of what we believe, who we trust, and under whose banner we move together. And we pray all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let us stand together.